If you would uh, all take your Bibles at this time and turn to the New Testament, uh, to the book of 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's page 986, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Uh, 1 Thessalonians is, uh, I think, a good book for us right now. It's a book that will exhort us to godly living. It will exhort us to carry out our calling in this culture, a culture that in many respects is as dark, if not darker, than the culture that the Thessalonians lived in. And so I think uh, this will be a very helpful book for us. First Thessalonians chapter 1, we'll read the entire chapter. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you, Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. I read an article the other day that uh, was entitled, Why Bad Habits Are Easy and Good Habits Are Hard. And the article makes that very point that it's very easy to fall into a bad habit. And it's very hard to discipline ourselves into a good habit. We know that junk food is a great example of that. Donuts tastes better than broccoli. Ice cream tastes better than salads. And, and so it's easy, once you get on this roll, kind of eating junk food, it's, it's easy just to keep going in that pattern. Exercise, of course, is another example. It's, it's easier to sleep in. It's easier to come home from work or a hard day and just sit down and relax. It's, it's much harder to discipline yourself to regularly exercise. And and I think we could say the same thing about involvement in the church, serving in the church. Uh, There are people in churches who for years faithfully attended church twice on Sundays. It was was just part of their normal routine. But but then for, for one reason or another they got out of the habit. Twicers became oncers. And, and now it's very difficult to get back into that habit. 
Same thing comes when it, when it comes to serving in the church. There are those who at one point were, were very active in serving in the church, but again, for one reason or another, they just kind of stopped. They just kind of stepped back, and, and now they, they find themselves really on the fringe of church life. And so I think that this book is going to be very helpful for us because it's going to encourage us to, to not give up, to, to press on, to, to use the, the gifts, the time, the talents the Lord has given to us to, to serve him, to serve our churches, and, and really to serve our communities. Now chapter one, the, the, the main theme of chapter one, the main subject of chapter one is Paul's thankfulness. He, he writes, you'll notice in verse three, we give thanks to God always for all of you. Paul is thankful for the church in Thessalonica. Why is he thankful? What is he thankful for? Well, chapter one tells us that Paul is thankful for four things. And we're gonna, we're gonna see tonight how these connect to our own lives. First of all, he is thankful for their salvation. Secondly, he is thankful for their service. Third, he is thankful for their suffering. And fourth, he is thankful for their saltiness. I had to have a fourth S, and so it's saltiness. Now before we get into the first chapter, it's helpful to know something about this city. What do we know about Thessalonica? What do we know about the Thessalonian church? Well, Thessalonica was uh, quite a large city for its day. It had a population of right around 200,000 people. And so children, you can think of Modesto somewhat. Modesto, I think, is a little bit bigger than 200,000 people. But it's a, it's a bigger city like that. Thessalonica was also on a trade route. And, and because of that, a lot of people, both business, commerce, a lot of things passed through that city. It was also a very wicked city. Prostitution was legal in Thessalonica. Divorce was very common in Thessalonica. Another thing that was very common in Thessalonica, very sadly, is that Thessalonica is a place where, where babies were quite often just abandoned in the city and, and left for dead. Another thing we know about Thessalonica is that it was especially known for their trade guilds. You might remember months ago, you probably don't remember this, but you might. Months ago, when we started the book of Revelation, one of the things I told you about the book of Revelation, one of the things I told you about the Roman Empire in the first century is that they were known for their trade guilds. Trade guilds were, were kind of like labor unions. And so if you, if you wanted to be part of a certain industry, let's say you wanted to be a coppersmith or you wanted to be a baker or something like that, you had to join the coppersmith trade guild or you couldn't work or you had to join the, the baker trade guild or you couldn't work. Now, now you might ask, well, what was so bad about that? What was so wrong with that? Well, the, the problem was that being part of a trade guild presented a moral dilemma for a Christian. You see, these various trade guilds would, would often have their meetings at local pagan temples. And, and these meetings weren't just a, you know, a sit-down dinner with a speaker. 
These meetings would include various pagan rituals, uh, most of which involved prostitution and sexual immorality. You had to be involved in that. And so you can see the, the predicament that a Christian would face. You can imagine thinking to yourself, you know, I need to work. I, I need to support my family. But in order to do that, I have to be part of one of these trade guilds. And if I'm part of one of these trade guilds, how can I possibly go to their meetings? How can I possibly be part of a trade guild when, when their meetings are filled with gross sin and immorality? And, and so Thessalonica was a very dark place. It was a very pagan place. Now into this pagan city, God sent a missionary. The missionary was the Apostle Paul. Paul went there on his second missionary journey. Children, you might know that Paul went on three missionary journeys. He went there on his second missionary journey, probably around the year 49 AD. Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, by the way, is one of the earliest books in the New Testament. It might be the, the first or the second earliest book of the New Testament. And so Paul goes to Thessalonica on this missionary journey, and it's not easy. It's not like Paul is walking into Ripon, where a lot of people are Christians, there's churches everywhere. It's not like Paul's going to, to Sioux Center, Iowa, where there's a lot of churches, a lot of Christians, a lot of Christian influence. Paul is going into this wicked, pagan, idolatrous, sexually immoral city. And I want you to see what happens when he goes there. So take your Bibles and go to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 17. City. Acts 17. And notice verse 1 of Acts 17. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving. So stop right there. For three straight Sabbath, Paul goes into the synagogue and he preaches the gospel. Notice the reaction he gets in verse 4. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas and are so good. But the reaction isn't all positive. Look at verse 5. But the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. It was a challenge for Paul. It was difficult for Paul. There was a lot of opposition to the gospel. We, we sometimes read the book of Acts through these very romanticized lenses. And, and we think of all the, the great things that Paul did and all the churches that he planted. But it was not easy. He faced a lot of opposition in Thessalonica. But a church was planted by God's grace there. And, and now it's about a year later, a year after he plants this church, and Paul writes this letter to the church in Thessalonica. Now, there are a number of reasons why Paul writes letters in the New Testament. He, he wrote the Corinthians and 1 Corinthians 
because they were a messed up group. They had a lot of problems in that church. He wrote the book of Galatians because the churches in Galatia were departing from the gospel. But he writes 1 Thessalonians to encourage the Christians there. If you look ahead to chapter 3 of 1 Thessalonians and verse 1, Paul says, Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith. Paul wants to know how these believers are doing. He doesn't just plant a church and then walk away from it, never to return. He, he wants to know how they're doing, and he wants to strengthen and encourage their faith. And, and I pray, this is, this is just the first chapter, but I pray as we make our way through these five chapters that this is how the Lord will use this book in our lives, that, that he will encourage us and he will strengthen us as we live in a culture that is not all that different from that of Thessalonica. And so that's the background, and now Paul is going to express his thankfulness for this church for four things. First of all, their salvation. Take a look at verse 4. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Paul is thankful ultimately to God for how these people responded to the gospel. Now we know that, that not everyone responds to the gospel in the same way. We know that um, while we are to preach the gospel indiscriminately to all people, while we are to offer forgiveness of sins and eternal life and right standing with God to all who believe in Jesus, we don't, we don't discriminate. We don't say, well, I don't think the gospel's for you. I think it's for you. While we preach the gospel to all people, we also know that not all will respond positively. Not all will embrace Christ as he's offered in the gospel. I've been preaching for over 20 years now. And, and it's interesting to me to, to see how people react to the preaching of God's word. I find this especially to be true when I do memorial services. Often at a memorial service, you will get family and friends of the deceased who aren't Christians. And as they sit there during a memorial service and as they listen to the message, I, I can look at them and I can just tell that they don't want to hear it. I remember years ago, right over in this section, kind of in the middle of this section, Someone looking very angry at me as I was preaching the gospel. And eventually they got up and left. I don't think they ever returned. But it's interesting to see how, how people respond to the gospel. They, some will, will squirm in the pew. Some will look all over the place. Some, you can just tell, they, they are angry. They're, they're hostile. They have no interest in the message. But that wasn't the case with the church in Thessalonica. When they heard the truth, when they heard the law and the gospel, they came to understand that they were sinners. They, they came to understand that they were sinners who deserved judgment and that they were sinners who needed a savior. You, you see, it, it wasn't just that they now had some information from Paul. 
It, it wasn't just that now they had some knowledge that they could fill their heads with. It, it wasn't just that they could affirm certain theological truths. Notice that phrase, full conviction. Paul says that these believers were brought under full conviction. If you're a believer in Jesus, I don't really need to explain to you much what that means, do I? You know what that means. You, you know that, that you feel, when you came to Christ, you felt the weight and the burden of your sin. Whether, whether you grew up in a Christian home or whether you came to Christ later in life, you, you know that at some point in your life, you, you understood, I'm a sinner. And, and, and I'm, I'm deserving of judgment. And, and you were brought under full conviction by the Holy Spirit. And, and you have this experiential knowledge that your sin is an offense to God. And that you are hopeless without Jesus Christ. But you also know the joy, not only of knowing the burden of your sin, but you also know the joy of knowing that Jesus lifted that burden off of you. That he paid the debt you could not pay. He lived the life you could not live. You know that. And so when we sing, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. When we sing that, as we did last Sunday, you sing it with an experiential knowledge that that is true for you. The Lord brought you under full conviction and he brought you to Christ. And, and as Christian in Pilgrim's Progress, when that burden rolled off of your shoulders, you experienced the joy of the forgiveness of your sins. And so here, Paul gives thanks for the Lord's work of grace in the lives of these believers. He, he says the gospel came to you not only in word. It didn't just you know, go in one ear and out the other, you were convicted and you came to know Jesus as your Savior. Now, who did this work in them? It, 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 it wasn't because they were smarter than the other people in Thessalonica. It wasn't because they were more moral by nature. We notice that phrase here, in the Holy Spirit. This is the Spirit's work. This is what the Spirit does. He, he gives us spiritual life. He convicts us of our sin. He, he gives us the gift of faith so that we may believe in Jesus. And so I want to ask all of us tonight, do, do we give thanks to God for his work of grace in our lives? Or have we become, you know, rather ho-hum about it? Do we thank him? By the way, did you, did you notice the connection that Paul makes here with the doctrine of election? A lot of people are scared off by the doctrine of election. A lot of people say, is election really something we should talk about? Isn't, isn't election divisive? Well, it shouldn't be. 
Why would something that the Bible clearly teaches be divisive? You, you have to, listen, you have to do a lot of mental gymnastics to eliminate the doctrine of election from your Bibles. It's a very comforting doctrine. A lot of people will ask, and I've had people ask me this over the years, how can I know if I'm one of the elect? Spurgeon is, Charles Spurgeon is famous for having said that the elect don't have a yellow stripe on their backs. So you can't look in the mirror to see if you're elect. And, and people will ask the question, how, how can I know if I'm one of God's elect? Well, notice what Paul does here. He, he basically says, I know that God has chosen you. I know that you're one of the elect because you have responded to the gospel. If you were to go to the Apostle Paul, if you were to make an appointment with him and say, Paul, I need to talk to you about something. And you went into the Apostle Paul's office and you sat down with him and you said to Paul, Paul, how can I know if I'm one of the elect? I think Paul would say to you, do you believe in Jesus as he's offered in the gospel? Have you confessed your sins to him? Have you embraced him as Lord and Savior by faith? That's evidence that you are one of the elect. Now, there are other evidences as well. The canons of Dort mention a childlike fear of God as, a, as an evidence of election. Godly sorrow for sin, a hunger and thirst for righteousness. But brothers and sisters, listen. The chief fruit of election is faith in Christ. Do you believe in Christ? Do you embrace him by faith alone? If so, the Bible says that you are one of the elect. And this should comfort us. Because it, it, it teaches us that our salvation doesn't originate with us. It doesn't begin with us. It doesn't depend on us. And, and since God is the one who, who planned this work from eternity past and who began this work in your life, you can know that he's going to bring it to completion. And so Paul says, Thessalonian Christians, I thank God for your salvation. Do we thank God for our salvation? Do our lives show that we are thankful for our salvation? Secondly, Paul thanks them for their service. If you look at verse 3, you'll notice that Paul gives thanks for uh, three aspects of their service. First of all, there is their work of faith. Now, what exactly is a work of faith? Basically, it's, it's service for the Lord that stems from, that originates from, true faith. Now you say, well, what, what kind of work had these Christians been doing? One commentator says that it could be such things as caring for the sick, comforting the dying, instructing the ignorant. All of those are important. All of those are things that, that we should desire to see in our own congregation. It's not just the work of the pastor or the elders or the deacons. It's the responsibility of all of us to care for the sick, to comfort the dying, to instruct the ignorant. But what I think here, really, the context would lead us to believe that, that Paul is specifically thinking about their work in spreading the gospel. 
We'll get to this more when we look at verse 8, but it appears that this was a church that was active in evangelism, active in bringing the gospel to their community. And so he says, I, I thank the Lord for your work of faith, your work that stems from, that originates from, that flows from your faith in Christ. Secondly, he also is thankful for their labor of love. This is service that, that flowed from their love, love for God, first of all. Why do we love God? Why do you love God? Well, the Bible says that we love God because he first loved us. We, we love God because we know what he saved us from. We love God because if he left us to ourselves, we would get hell. We love God because he's given us the Holy Spirit. He's adopted us into his family. He's promised us eternal life. We could go on and on and on about why we love God. And because we love God, we love his people. And, and so this was a church that, that out of love for God and love for one another, they were laboring for God's kingdom. They served one another. They weren't, a, they weren't just a disconnected group of people. They served each other. They ministered to each other. They cared for each other. And then third, he gives thanks for their steadfastness of hope. Do you see that phrase in verse 3? These Christians lived in a very ungodly culture. Idolatry and immorality was all around them. The, the pressure to, to bow the knee to Caesar, to say Caesar is Lord, was constantly upon them. But these Christians were, were steadfast. They persevered. They, they didn't allow the world to conform them to its image because they were living for something better. They were living for a better city. They had hope. They had certainty of a better life to come. What about us? Would, would Paul give thanks to God for these things in our lives? Do we, do we desire to spread the gospel? Is it our commitment to, to actually, truly care for and minister to one another? And, and do we press on, even in the midst of a godless culture, are we steadfast because we have a great hope? The third thing that Paul gives thanks for is their suffering. Look at verse 6. He says, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. See that phrase? Much affliction. Paul was not a proponent of the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. Paul doesn't say, you know, Thessalonians, the reason why you're suffering so much is that you don't have enough faith. If you just had more faith, if you just believed a little harder, you wouldn't suffer. You'd be healthy and wealthy and popular and successful. There's none of that here. There's none of that in the entire Bible. And instead, he, he talks about how these Christians responded to suffering, how they responded to affliction. They responded, notice, with the joy of the Holy Spirit. 
Brothers and sisters, we shouldn't be surprised at affliction. We shouldn't be surprised when the world hates us. We shouldn't be surprised when life is difficult. First Peter 4, Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange was happening to you. Don't be surprised. Don't go when you're suffering. Don't go, this is weird. I thought I was a Christian. Why is this happening to me? These believers in Thessalonica suffered. Children, did you know that a lot of these Christians lost their jobs because they were Christians? Did you know that a lot of these people had their property taken away from them because they were Christians? Did you know that a lot of these people, their their own families shunned them? They didn't want anything to do with them? Children, imagine if your grandparents said to you, I don't want to talk to you anymore because you're a Christian. Imagine if your aunts and uncles said, we're done with you. Don't ever contact us again. Some of these people were even beaten. They were killed. But Paul says, in the the midst of that fiery trial, in the midst of much affliction, you responded with joy. This, This is a sign that a person truly knows the Lord. To to respond with Holy Spirit-produced joy in the face of suffering. Now, we have to be honest. We don't always respond that way. We we don't always respond to afflictions with joy. We, We often grumble. We often complain. We often become bitter. But don't forget that, that the Lord is always with us. He's always with us. And in whatever way you may suffer, God is with you and he will use that trial for your benefit. James chapter 1 verse 2. James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Now you say, that's nuts. James, you're a crazy man. Why would I, when life is difficult, count it all joy? James says, here's the reason. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Got to keep the big picture in mind that God is going to use suffering to grow us, to deepen our trust in him, to make us steadfast. And so Paul says, Thessalonian Christians, I thank God for how you have responded when you suffer. A fourth thing, he is thankful for their saltiness. Children, you might know that in um, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says that we are the salt of the earth. And, and you might know that, that way back then, 2,000 years ago, salt was used for a number of different things. Okay, children, you have, you have salt in your kitchen to add flavor to your meal, maybe. You like to put salt on things. Maybe see mom and dad or one of your grandparents put salt on things. In that day, they they used salt as a flavor enhancer, kind of like we do today. 
But they also used it as a preservative, and they also used it as an antiseptic for people who were hurting in some way. The point is, now we live in a different time, obviously. We, we don't use salt as an as a antiseptic anymore. But whatever the particular use, salt was seen as something that has a positive effect. We are called, the church is called, Christians are called to be salt. We are called to have a positive impact on our society. And that's what the Thessalonians were doing. If you look at verse 8, he says, Not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone everywhere. It's gone all over the place. Now, do you remember what I told you earlier at the beginning of the sermon that the Thessalonica was on a trade route? And so a lot of people were coming in and out of the city. And so you can imagine, word is spreading There are these these Christians, these believers in Jesus who had turned from worshiping dead idols to the true and living God, and they were active and loving and caring and serving one another. They were were responding with joy even when they suffered. And, And news about this group, news about this church is going out of Thessalonica, and it's going all over the place. They're being salt. They're impacting society. That, that they're doing what the Lord has called them to do. Now again, we live in a different time. They didn't have cars and planes and the internet back then. News travels differently today. But I guess the point I want to make to you, or rather the question that I want to ask you, what kind of impact are we making for God's kingdom? How are we being salt? And and do do we believe that God will use us to make an impact in our society? Or are we such dour Calvinists that we say, oh, God would never use a worm like me? Or do we hide behind the sovereignty of God and say, Well, you know, God is sovereign, and he will do what he will do, and I don't really matter. Last Sunday morning, I mentioned to you the conference that I attended recently in Southern California. It was a conference that was designed to really encourage pastors to, in turn, encourage their churches to stand up for righteousness, to, to do what is right. Most of the people who were at that conference were from a different theological tradition than I am, different theological tradition than we are. I'm not saying they weren't Christians, but I am saying that, that there are areas of theology over which we would have some differences. But here's what I noticed. I noticed that this, these people believed. They really believed that God would use them to impact the culture. They believed it and they lived it. They trusted God. 
that God is a big God, that he is an almighty God, and that he uses his people to make a difference in this world. And sometimes I think we use God's sovereignty as an excuse for our inactivity. Now, I'm not saying God is not sovereign, but I am saying that in his sovereignty, he has decreed that he will use people like us. He calls us to be active. And, and so shouldn't we believe that, that as we go out in faith, as we go out in the power of the Holy Spirit, that God will use us just like the Thessalonians to make an impact in this culture? Shouldn't we believe that? And shouldn't we live that? Have you ever heard of Brother Andrew? Brother Andrew was a, was a Dutch missionary who founded the organization that I mentioned to you this morning, Open Doors. Brother Andrew's nickname was God's Smuggler because what Brother Andrew did was he smuggled Bibles and Christian literature into communist countries during the Cold War. Brother Andrew founded Open Doors in 1955, and at the very beginning, he carried out all the work by himself. In the beginning of that ministry, a lot of people were saying to this man, why are you doing this? You're just one man. Brother Andrew, do you, do you really think that, that you can make an impact as one person? Brother Andrew died last year. He was 94 years old. Open Doors that he founded in 1955 and started doing all the work by himself. Open Doors is now active in over 60 countries. On average, they distribute 300,000 Bibles and 1.5 million Christian books and materials throughout the world every year. Brother Andrew was famous for a particular phrase. One man with God is a majority. One man with God is a majority. The point is, brothers and sisters, God is on our side. Rather, we are on God's side. We belong to him. And since he is with us, should we not go out into this world expecting that he will work through us to build, to strengthen his kingdom? What would Paul say about us? If he was writing 1 Zion chapter 1, what would he write? The final story of Zion is yet to be written. By God's grace, there are many more years, hopefully, of ministry for this church. It's not profitable to rest on our laurels. It's not helpful to talk about the past. It's time to move forward. What would Paul say about us? May the Spirit use this book to encourage us 
to press forward in faith, to love each other, to serve each other, and to leave this building and go out into the world and with faith in God, trust that he will use us to be salt and light in our communities. May he do it for his glory and not for ours. And may he use us as weak and frail as we are. May he use us because we have the spirit of God in us. We go forth with confidence in him. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we thank you for the opening chapter of this book. We thank you for this church whom you have used in Thessalonica for 2,000 years to, to be an example for all of your people. We thank you for your work of grace in their lives, and we thank you for your work of grace in us. And well, Lord, you, we know that you have not changed. We know that, that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so we pray, Lord, tonight that, that we would look to you, that we would trust you, that we would be your instruments, and that by the power of your Spirit, you would use us to proclaim your truth in this world. Lord, help us to do this for your glory. Help us to do this so that your name would be exalted. Lord, give us the strength we need. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.